It lurks in the darkest corners of your basement, lying in wait for an unsuspecting centipede or a wayward fruit fly to become entangled in its messy cobweb. The struggling pulses a telltale vibration, and the nearly blind cellar spider? Well, it pounces, quickly throwing a net of webbing and lashing down the most unfortunate guest. But this spider isn't always one to wait. For dinner, perhaps, the long-legged spider sits out in search of another arachnid, mimicking the hapless prey of a black widow, only to take down the venomous predator on its own turf. Their bio looks much like a Shakespearean tragedy. Infanticide, aggressive mimicry, parental care, promiscuity, intense sperm competition. Okay, so maybe you won't find that last one in Macbeth, but it's a strange world lurking in the dungeons of our homes, so grab a flashlight and head downstairs. Welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. You know the deal. You and the rest of the Rat Pack spend day after day scampering in the subways, and at the end of the long work week, your fur has lost its luster. Try Rat's Nest Fur Detailing Spray for the luxury pampering you can depend on. You no longer have to shy away from the spotlight. Rat's Nest Fur Detangling Spray, giving you the boost you need to say cheese. Well, hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Iwigi, and I'm joined by Dr. Christine Fleener. I'm still here. Hello. <laughs> I never left. And <laughs> good. And we are- in the dark. <laughs> um, thank you for turning the lights back on and we are joined by glenn edder the one and only who is a chief rep for Folsid's pest pr firm so what do you guys do over at Folsid's pest pr firm well as you know pests have sort of a bad reputation as might you might might be indicated by the term pest a lot of people think they pester them they're not wanted but we're trying to um if you think about a spider spinning a web, we're trying to spin kind of a new reputation for the pests out there of the world to help people realize they can be, um, you know, valuable companions, sort of like a helper monkey. Yeah. So what are some of your ugliest clients? Well, we don't prefer the term ugly. We pre- prefer the term um, differently appeared. <laughs> um, it's, like, <laughs> it's hard to say, actually. We, we tend to, to not focus so much on appearance, more on substance and soul. I think we're looking, yeah, so uh, cockroaches, for example. Mm, We also don't particularly like that name either. We prefer scuttlebug. (laughs) It's a little cuter. Yeah, and we talk about how they might, you know, they're they're nice and that, you know, uh, if you're lonely at night, they can cuddle up to you. You can have a bunch, put a bunch in your sleeping bag. They'll keep you warmer. We we focus on the positives versus the negatives. Um, Do you have any venomous uh, pests that you welcome into your sleeping bags? Yeah, we we prefer we prefer the term spicy, not venomous. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Glenn, um, you're really good at this. Or, yeah. yeah. Or um, nervous, nervously stimulating. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we we yeah we do PR for it. basically anything that is considered dangerous or a pest. We do PR for it. yeah. So all kinds of venomous snakes, cockroaches, spiders, scorpions. Um, people with anger management problems. What do you call scorpions? We call them cur- uh, curvy tails. Curvy tails. Curvy Yeah. And if you get two scorpions together, in fact, that's our, our um, logo is two scorpions, and their tails are curved together to make a heart. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah, middle schoolers also. Middle schoolers are surprisingly hard to spin as a positive, but <laughs> we're still working on that. I'm just kidding, middle schoolers out there. I love middle schoolers. I... I once was a middle schooler, and I'm still, in many ways, have the mental age of a middle school. Middle school. Yeah, so. some of your best friends are middle schoolers, right? <laughs> My only friends, some <laughs> yeah. would say. 
that's, that's, that's a subject for another time. Yeah, so if you have a pest out there as a pet or a pest that's dear to your heart, please contact us and we can try to help your neighbors understand your connection. Okay, or if well, you just live with pests in your home, we'll try to help. I actually yeah. genuinely love this. We don't know how long this business is going to last. It seems like week to week. <laughs> Probably two weeks. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, but yeah, I, actually, I, I actually genuinely would like to, to buy some of those uh, some shares or... No, you're welcome. Stonks or whatever it is I can I can purchase. We're always looking for more, um, yeah, stockholders and stakeholders in our enterprise. We have a lot of business talk. I think it's a great idea. There, Thank you. There, there's a, a group out in, I think they're in the United Kingdom, but they, it's called the Ugly Animal Preservation Society. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, they're they're brilliant because the idea is that you know there are all these charismatic megafauna, these big animals that are yeah, super adorable. Got all the attention. Koalas, pandas, yeah, snow leopards, polar bears, and they get all the attention. And so all this conservation funding and research goes to supporting efforts to preserve those species. And so they have this whole thing where they're tied in with like comedians that put on these, you know, shows and this big competition to have the, you know, ugliest animal of the year and everything to try and show that like the aesthetics of an animal are not the only merits, obviously, of that species. Do you remember any of the ugliest animals of the year? Um, they, I mean, the proboscid Monkey is always Aww. prominently featured. The blobfish, the blobfish. Uh, is on there. I think their logo is the blobfish. Giant salamander. Yeah. Axolotls. Hagfish. Yeah. The titicaca scrotum frog. Interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a yeah, classic. <laughs> well, the more I you think, know. again, that could use a, a renaming. Yeah, yeah. I think it needs your branding firm. What would you, what would you call it? <laughs> I'd call it the titty, uh, titty cock um, ball croaker. The, the ball croaker, huh? That's <laughs> not. Slightly better. Rough draft, yes. rough draft, rough yeah. draft. I take that back. We'd call it the um, warbling, um, the the warbling prince. Oh, that's beautiful. That's yeah. way better. Give it a kiss. Yeah. See? See, see Sometimes you got to get a rough draft out of the way, and then yeah, give it a kiss. Yeah. It's the warbling prince. Awesome. Well, Glenn, I think your expertise is going to be much needed here because this uh, episode we're talking about the long-bodied cellar spider, also known as Fulcus phalangioides. And this is a spider that is probably, you know, pretty easy to overlook the animal itself, but certainly if anywhere in the world that you're walking around in a basement, you're likely to have to duck just a little bit lower because they often are making their cobwebs in in your basement. Yeah, this species is, I think, our fifth in our profile of urban wildlife. We chose the cellar spider because the other species have all sort of highlighted animals that we're familiar with that are running around on the streets, and they've sort of taken the landscape, uh, urban landscapes, and use them in maybe a similar way to what their natural habitats would be. And one of the interesting things about the cellar spiders is that they've actually gone inside our houses and down into our basements, uh, and those basements mirror their native habit uh, habitats, which are like rotting logs and actually caves. So yeah, so we're going to talk about the cellar spider. So maybe you can do some PR for our, our good eight-legged friends out there. I just want to say that I moved recently and uh, I had built such a close relationship with a spider that had built its web in my house that I chose to relocate that spider with me 
So, Did you really? Yeah. Um, that's wow. awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, because your new basement looks quite nice. <laughs> that's Yeah, I was scoping it out for all the best spots to put the spider. Did um, you name your I, spider? Her name is Delilah. Yeah. <laughs> Delilah. Yeah. So you said it, her name. How did you know it was a sheep? Um, I did because of the thickness of their little, um, whatchamacallits in the front. Um, and... Calissera. I was going to say petty pups. What they're called? Really? Uh, well, yeah, they have calissera and then, uh, the males have these, uh, like, pedipalps that are engorged. Yes. So they're not engorged because they're not to hold on to the female during copulation. So, yeah. So that's how I inferred that, that it was female, but I actually am not a, a arachnologist. Though yeah. I did work for an entomologist for several years, which we can we can get to those stories later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll dive in there. We're also going to get into those those pedipalps. There's some pretty. <laughs> Gotta dive uh, right into those pedipalps. Oh, I was going to yeah. say there's some pretty gross stuff there, but you know, gross is subjective, and I am going to take my cue from Glenn and try to renegotiate my perceptions yes. about spiders and grossness in our conversation yes. here. It's a yeah. lifelong journey for sure. You know, petty pups are cool now, especially. <laughs> they're in. And, yeah, they're in in Europe. <laughs> Everyone's sporting petty pups. Yeah, I saw that they they sell pedipalps that uh, you can wear and like <laughs> use as a purse rather than you know one that hangs over your shoulders. You just get these things that dangle off your jowls. <laughs> you can... Yeah, it started with the bike messengers. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of trends start with that. So uh, we'll start with their taxonomy, and we've been giving uh, mnemonics or these memory devices for remembering the order of uh, taxonomic hierarchy. So kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And I've got a couple more from my students here. So one student said, keep practicing crochet or forget good scarves. That like. uh, actually makes sense. They don't always it, do that. No, I'll give you one that doesn't make sense, (laughs) but I liked it nonetheless. Kindergartners, dangle, court, ordered, functionless, gentrified submarines. That makes sense. Uh, Sort of. Uh, But you'll notice there that it was kindergartners dangle, and so that was uh, for division, which is for botany. That's a botany student. Oh, I got you. They use division instead of phylum. So uh, kingdom, animalia. This is familiar. All our species profiles have been animalia so far, but here's where we diverge. We're no longer in the vertebrates or the chordates. So phylum is arthropoda. Arthro, like arthritis, means joint. And then poda means foot. So these are joint-footed organisms. (laughs) And within the joint-footed organisms, there are a few different groups. There are the chalicerata, so the ones that have chalicera. And these are, chalicera are like these chewing mouth part kind of pincer things. And then there are also the separate uh, separate subphylum, which is for like insects have one, crustaceans have another subphylum. So for chalicerata, these are ones that have chalicera. And then class is euchalicera. And whenever you see eu, E-U, it just means good or true. So these are the true chalicerates. The order is Arania, Phylum, Folsidae, Genus, Fulcus. And so when we get to Genus, Fulcus, this is where we're starting to really narrow in. There are about 320 of these. And they all tend to have really, really long uh, legs to them. And they also are, they make cobwebs. So like the orb weaver spiders, which are in a different family, they make those really nice sort of classic Charlotte's web kind of spider webs. And these just make these sort of tangled messes. Uh, A lot of other spiders will make a web and then they'll chew it up and then 
reconstitute the web and then spin a new one. These ones will just build a web and then build on top of it and then build on top of it and build on top of it. Which is what cobwebs it. Yeah, which is what cobwebs it. They don't really have, it's not like a clean structure. They're loosely, horizontally <laughs> laid out, but not that fancy. Uh, and then uh, Fulcus, which is a genus, just comes from the Greek word Fulcos, which means long-legged or uh, also means crooked. I guess there's a reference in the Iliad where someone is described as being Fulcos, uh, which just means like crooked. And the genus is Phalangioides. So oides, what does oides mean? Are you asking, are you asking what does the oides actually mean? Like yeah. it means like I- ish? Ish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, looks like. It I don't is... know, Glenn, save me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're ish like uh, phalangium. So what the heck does phalangium mean? Fingies. Uh, Bits? I, it may share a similar root. It comes from phalanx, which is a Greek word for like a formation that they'd use in battle, which was sort of this long arc. And I oh. think that actually shares a root word with like your phalanges, which are your fingers, um, sort of these curved uh, features. Yeah. Uh, but phalangium is a genus of apilionids, which are a different group entirely of arachnids called daddy long legs or harvestmen. Right. Uh, and so phalangium is a genus of these apilionid type of arachnids that are unrelated. So they have the appearance of the daddy long legs. So the cellar spider, which is what we're going to be talking about, are very similar in appearance to daddy long legs and are often called daddy long legs, even though they're unrelated to uh, what is maybe more properly uh, termed daddy long legs. Right, because those harvestmen are more closely related to mites, aren't they? Yeah, they have they have a fused uh, their cephalothorax, okay. the front part and the abdomen are fused mm-hmm. together into a single root or into a single unit, and then the what we're talking about, Fulcus phalangioides, the long-bodied cellar spider, they're true spiders, and they have separate cephalothorax and then a longer abdomen that's sort of separate in the back. I've always found it very interesting that if you tell a kid, like if they or see a harvestman. And they're like, oh, it's a spider. And you say, actually, it's not a spider. Then suddenly they're okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this later. But, uh, you know, just the the idea of spider is probably more terrifying than a spider itself. Yeah. I looked up to try and figure out what was the etymology of daddy long legs. Like, why are they called daddy long legs and not mommy long legs? I couldn't find anything. I mean, it could be just sort of an artifact of, like, a, a crawdads are, you know, the little tiny lobstery-like things that live in freshwater, and they're called crawdads, and it probably comes from kind of these grumpy old men that sit on their porches and then just snap at anything that walks by. And so, like, a crawdad is an animal that spends all its time in this little crevice and just kind of harasses anything that comes by. Uh, that's a different example, but with animals, at least in English, it seems like whenever someone talks about an animal, like, oh, you know, that's why it was interesting when Christine said, I brought her, her spider back. She used her. And so, you know, she meant female, right? And then, but if Christina just said he, 
like, oh, I brought this spider and he was big. You wouldn't necessarily know if it was male or female because yeah. it was just sort of a default in English to refer to things as male. So I don't know if daddy long legs just kind of gets defaulted to a male pronoun. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't ask pronouns though. I mean, just because she, well, anyway. Also, I'm reading here that harvestmen can also be referred to as shepherd spiders. Did you see that? No. Shepherd spiders, because of how their unusually long legs reminded observers of the way that some European shepherds used stilts to better observe their wandering flocks from a distance. Oh, wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So, Christine, do you want to describe to us what your long-legged cellar spider looks like? Actually, um, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> well, I was going to say that this one was uh, was um, was not actually, it was like a, a funnel web spider that I oh. transferred. It was not one of those spiders. But it kind of illustrates my longstanding, lifelong journey of starting off, le- teaching myself out of a fear of spiders. Um, <laughs> but we can talk about that later, too. Um, but I can describe a cellar spider to you. It has these... This super skinny body, um, this uh, cute little butt, this cute little abdomen, this cute little, it has these three little sections, boop, 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 and then these super duper long skinny legs, um, and they look so fragile when you see them. They're like little wisps. Are you Googling that to see if it's <laughs> accurate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am uh, looking it up. They are cute. They do have <laughs> cute little body parts. <laughs> <laughs> And what about for for size? Like are these big spiders, the little spiders? Um, they are little spiders, but they can vary in size. And commonly, and we might talk about this a bit as we go, but commonly there is one to a web. But you will commonly see in areas like if you're in the basement, for example, a lot of webs will be built very close to each other, and there will be uh, spiders of varying size. And that's because not only are they of varying ages, but of different sexes. Um, and Ooh, the females right. of the species are larger. Yeah, the females are larger. And yeah, the females get, they get pretty big. I mean, their legs can get up to like almost two inches long uh, yeah, each. And they so, big, yeah. yeah, if you squished it flat, it'd be four inches across. Yeah, the the other, one of the other names for them is skull spiders. And on the abdomen, oh, they yeah. have this sort of like a light colored body, but they do have these darker spots one on the cephalothorax and then a little bit spills onto the abdomen and it kind of looks a little bit like a skull it's kind of yeah pretty pretty awesome yeah it's very small and very delicate though yeah um yeah so the males are typically smaller than the females and the males also have a shorter lifespan so they live one to two years and the females which I guess for spiders, they make pretty good pets, I guess, because uh, they can live two to three years. So, yeah, you could get emotionally attached, I suppose, over <laughs> that long period of time. Yeah, their they're super long legs are covered in small little hairs. They're, a lot of spiders, like garden orb weaver spiders, they construct a web. Again, this is like the Charlotte's Web kind of structure. Most of the like structural elements of the web are not sticky and then all of the little side webs that they make connecting those structural elements those are sticky and so a lot of these spiders that have small little feet they have 
less chance of stepping onto one of the sticky parts if they're trying to step on just the non-sticky structural elements. The cellar spiders, one of the interesting things is they have really tiny little feet, um, but they have also lots of little hairs on the feet. So they have a ton of tiny little points where no single point is putting that much pressure onto a sticky part of a web. And so they're less likely to get stuck on the sticky parts of the web. And but that also really... makes them, I think it makes them less likely to break through the ice when they're walking on ponds. <laughs> that is spread out their weight more. Yeah, we, we were going to get there later, but that's one of the biggest advantages is <laughs> yeah, not breaking through the ice in the winter. Good. Yeah, I'm glad we're getting uh, to that. Sorry to jump uh, ahead. No, that's also, all right. Also, I feel like it's a common misconception that spiders are impervious to their own webs. And I think it's really important to note that they can get stuck in their own webs. They just have, like you said, these special little feet and not all of the strands, uh, all, not all of the silk is particularly sticky. So if you are thinking of relocating a spider and your plan is to just like schloop it up in its web and put it outside, that's actually a big no-no. At yeah. Least try to delicately remove them from their web. Yeah. So however with well not that i'm ever going to advocate for that strategy for removing them and uh <laughs> relocating them but one of the interesting things is that the long-legged long-legged cellar spiders which i guess we can just call cellar spiders from here on out the cellar spiders they don't have sticky webs at all and so rather than relying on the stickiness oh. of their webs to ensnare their prey they just rely on the cobwebiness and the disheveledness of it of their prey to get caught in it and then sort of tangled into it and so one of the things that would come up is well okay why do, would you have these adaptations for dealing with sticky webs if you're not if you yourself don't necessarily have a sticky web um, i should mention two other adaptations that they have one is behavioral so if they get their legs stuck in a sticky web they can just chew around that and then pull their leg off and get back onto stable ground. So they chew around the web. Uh, and then the other thing is autotomy. Uh, so autotomy is the uh, sort of release or the separation of a limb from the body. And animals do this for like fear reasons, like lizards or I saw a grasshopper leg once that had was flopping around on the asphalt at uh, at the Grand Canyon, and it was just like <laughs> pulsing on the ground. And it's a predator deterrent if you have a part of your body that can pop off and then distract a predator. And so, in this situation, being able to autonomize one of your limbs isn't necessarily a predator deterrent, but it allows you to walk around on sticky legs. And then, if you do get trapped, you can just you know, rip your leg off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Convenient. But they don't grow back. They don't grow back, no. Yeah. It, it's also a good party trick, I would say. An excellent party trick. Yeah, you have a limited number of times that you could do it <laughs> because, again, it does not say. grow back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you better make well, that, it worth it. That makes each time you do it more special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the reason why spiders have eight legs and not six, like <laughs> insects. Two party tricks. Yeah. So, well, but then that's the question is, well, why, why would these fulcid spiders, which are, that's a genus, that they don't make sticky webs, why would they have adaptations for dealing with sticky webs? Because they build in the same area as other spiders, and they need to be, or no, it's, it's just conserved evolution? I think they're cruising around in other spiders' webs and nibbling on them. <laughs> they're like, 
moving around on other sticky webs and snagging things, robbing them. Yeah, maybe. so so uh, Christine, your idea was that it's sort of like a vestigial yeah. trait that they have where they evolve from sticky web spiders and then they've lost the ability to make sticky webs, but they still have adaptations for walking around on sticky webs. Yeah. 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 So that that could be one reason. But okay, Glenn's but reason. It's not it. mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't want to like pit you guys against each other. <laughs> no, but I am keeping score. But Glenn <laughs> is keeping score. Uh, I'm behind 12 to 1. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh in terms of diet, they are they have two different ways. So I mentioned one is that they rely on prey coming to them and just sort of getting ensnared in their webs. And so I went down into my basement. I got this ultraviolet flashlight that I was really excited about for mostly for looking at wood. And then I just got obsessed and I was looking at everything with the black light. And yes. I was like, oh, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to look and see if the, because I have tons in my basement. And so I was like, I'm going to see if the cellar spiders light up in the ultraviolet light. And it turns out disappointingly, they do not, but a lot of their prey does. And so there were, uh, there's some pill bugs or roly polies that got snared in their webs, which was That's strange, but also cellar centi- uh, or house centipedes That's were also less... trapped in there. Mm-hmm. Was that? That makes, that makes yeah. sense. Um, I was, I thought you were going to say that you like found a message in the web that was like, help me. <laughs> <laughs> help, I'm trapped in the basement. <laughs> I, I did not find that. Relocate me. <laughs> yeah. But some of their prey does, does light up in their webs. Um, but that's one way of getting prey to come to them. But the other way is like Glenn, like you mentioned that they will actively go and hunt on other spiders webs. Okay. I accept that. That's high risk, isn't it? Seems like it. It is high Could risk, be. which is potentially one reason why you would want really long limbs, right? So you could yeah. walk away and like your core, your body is far away from the first part that might, they have really terrible eyesight. And so they have really, they have all these hairs on their legs they are very tactile. And so they can sense the vibrations in the webs, both uh, when a prey gets trapped in their own web, but they also can sense the vibrations in the webs of other organisms. And so if that, you know, that detection method doesn't work out and they get successfully hunted by, you know, a a black widow spider or brown recluse or they have a reputation for being really poisonous, which they're not, uh, but they probably have that reputation because they kill and eat poisonous spiders like brown recluses and uh, black widows. But they That's do it by infiltrating these other webs. Yeah. Um, I have a million questions. Um, so yeah. if I'm a cellar spider and I would like to eat myself a brown recluse, is there not a horrible mismatch where this uh, brown recluse is far more venomous than I am and uh, far, like, is this, is this really, am I, am I, can I really do this? Am I... What, what's the face-off situation between the cellar spot? Like, are they sneaking up on these recluses or like... Yeah, yeah so just because something's toxic to you or venomous against you doesn't necessarily mean it's venomous against everything. So some things okay. are capable of tolerating that, but with the spiders, the they're not like shooting <laughs> venom and it's not like a tactile you know thing where if you come in contact with it then you can get a rash it's it has to bite you and so again having these long webs is helpful i have never seen this but in descriptions of it they can actually spit 
web or shoot, not spit, but they can shoot webbing at something. So they could potentially restrain or lash down a potential prey item from a distance. And if you have these longer limbs, then you might be able to yeah, ward off this other thing while you shoot your webbing at it and sort of weave it up into a tangled mess. Are there any instances of a cellar spider like taking off its own leg, you know, and then beating beating <laughs> its opponent with that leg in the submission? Yeah, well, they, I mean, they do have annual boxing tournaments down in my, <laughs> that's not true. I, I was just, uh, boxing is on my brain right now because I just read a paper from in our next season, we're going to be talking about endurance in animals. And I was just uh, looking at papers by this guy, Dave Carrier. And he came up with the the running hypothesis that humans evolved to run long distances and hunt prey that way. And he had another idea that the human fist or the human hand no. evolved to be a fist for punching other humans. And the human <laughs> skull shows a matched adaptation of being able to receive punches from other humans <laughs> so no. uh, i don't know i don't i don't think as far as i know there are no adaptations that cellar spiders have for tolerating being clubbed with another uh, cellar spider's leg but, so we're at our most natural if we run up to someone and then hit them with our fist just to clarify According. To clarify, I, I don't know that I, I from put a, a lot distance. of stock in the punching hypothesis, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Christine, you said it was metal, but it's going to get even a little bit more metal for this oh my because gosh, rock and roll. Do you know what aggressive mimicry is? Do you come across this? I'm literally just reading that section of this Wikipedia article. <laughs> so, yes, well, I we'll, do. <laughs> yeah, we'll edit that out. So, Christine, what's yeah. aggressive mimicry? <laughs> um so aggressive mimicry is well when i guess you use you mimic another animal and you use that to kind of um taunt them or to make it seem like you're the same species as them and then you aggressively act on on the situation yeah it's like uh the old looney tunes where the wolf dresses up in the sheep's clothing and then Uh goes and infiltrates and eats all the sheep yeah yeah so they do this and there's so they have again these really tactile feet for sensing vibrations in the web they use that for detecting when there is prey around on their webs and they also use it for mating which we'll talk about later but they will take this and so you you brought in a funnel web spider Mm -hmm. and have you observed their feeding behavior or like how they interact with things on their web? Uh, It was actually fascinating. One of the reasons why I felt obligated to protect this creature with everything that I had is that she had built this amazing web and and it's unusual along my window. And I thought it was the most unusual Hmm. thing because, I mean, traditionally funnel web spiders, they they want to be in a concealed safe space and they want to come out and hunt and then enter back into that. But it was a very exposed area and uh, I never saw them hunt. They just basically disappeared for several hours, and then I would look up and see them in there. And then, of course, they would also occasionally catch things in their web and never addressed the, them. <laughs> it was like a lost cause. I don't know. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it was really weird. I have funnel web spiders on my windows also, and I assume it's because, you know, insects congregate on the windows yeah. and they try to get out and then you know they just bounce around eventually they fall down and they fall down on the yeah. web spiders so web but they never indicated that they had actually like consumed any bit of them i don't know 
Hmm. Yeah, with the funnel webs, uh, I've seen it a few times where, you know, you can kind of mimic it if you put a stick or something onto the web, the funnel web, then and then you kind of jostle it around. It'll give these struggle vibrations that the spider will pick up on and come out and then wrap the prey. Yeah. And so, you know, it'll come out and investigate. A lot of spiders have this response because they want to know when something's in their web because if something gets in their web and then is given enough time to get free, then they don't get that meal. Yeah. But then the spider has to repair its web. As soon as it starts, a prey item starts to struggle on the web, the spider is going to come investigate. Right. And so what the cellar spiders will do on another spider's web is they'll go up to the edge of it and they'll sort of tap against it with their long legs and they'll draw out the other spiders. So it's sort of an ambush. You can imagine if you were one of these super toxic spiders and you detect vibrations in your web and you're like, oh man, there's prey here. I might as, you know, I got to go get it you would expect that prey to be like struggling and caught up in the web. And so you might not be expecting a healthy, larger than you, fulcid spider, cellar spider. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I was reading about it in the context of predators and how, yeah, they were like, this is a really clever way for us to get stuff. But, it, but oh, wait, who's tapping on our web? Let's go, let's go open the door. And then they get swallowed by a jumping spider. So <laughs> jumping spiders use the exact same mimicry mm-hmm. <laughs> strategy in order to eat cellar spiders, which I think is, I guess, poetic justice. I know it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So they're they're not super super intelligent because no. <laughs> they they can't map that strategy onto other ones. Uh, but I guess maybe part of the reason uh, maybe we get you know we kind of ran out of time to talk about sex and squirrels in the last episode, but maybe we could just jump right over to sex from mm-hmm. uh from here and talk about reproduction and the cellar spiders because it's pretty cool. So the males are mature before the females which is not surprising because they're generally smaller at adulthood and it's not as energy intensive to be a male as it is for a female and so yeah so their their courtship basically the female will release pheromones they don't have a breeding season per se but when they are sexually receptive an individual female will release pheromones that males are attracted to. Again, they're not visual. So there are some spiders that will, you know, make visual cues that they're receptive. But with them, they're just releasing pheromones. And then the males will come up and they'll approach the the web. But there's cannibalism in cellar spiders, particularly when food resources... I mean, the density in my basement of these cellar spiders is outstanding Mm -hmm. i mean it's huge and so it's sort of boom or bust because they're active basically whenever it's 50 degrees or above which it always is in my basement but in the winter there's far less food for them coming in from the outside so there's a huge crash in the population and they'll cannibalize the the young but also the females which are larger can cannibalize the the males but the males will come up to the female's nest and they'll do the same thing where they'll kind of tap on the edge of it and thrum out a little vibrational song, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Sexy Morse code. Yeah. Drumming. Everybody likes the drummers. Yeah. So mating is, uh, yeah, happens between the f- males and the females. And we talked about the pedipalps. And so these are these little structures oh, yeah. in the front of the mouth. And in the males, they're swollen. And so... Mating takes anywhere from like five minutes to an hour and a half or so. 
essentially what happens is <laughs> the male rubs his genitals, uh, his genital orifice with these pedipalps and extracts out a drop of sperm and then kind of wraps it up in webbing or silk, I suppose sounds a little bit more pleasing. And then in the mating process, <laughs> we'll take one of these pedipalps, which are these big, thick club-like things, and the female has two different structures, uh, an external uterus, and then there's on that a what's called uh, an epigyne, and epi means above, and then uh, gyne comes from gynecos, which is Greek for female. Uh, the male will, with the pedipalp, place the sperm onto that structure. And it's, it doesn't, it's not an internal fertilization process. And so the male places it on here. And while he's placing the sperm on there, he'll kind of feel around and pulsate around the little pedipalps in this disgusting way. Uh, not disgusting way. <laughs> a highly adaptive way. Mm -hmm. And if the females, which are promiscuous, if they've mated with another male, then the sperm will be on the epigyne and the next male to mate with a female will try and remove the sperm before placing his own sperm there. It's kind of a cool strategy. Do you, so there's... do you know if there can be multiple fathers to a single, like, I know they're not called litters, but uh, to an egg sack of, of multiple eggs? Yeah, so the, the female lays about 15, 20 right. eggs up to, I think, maybe like 50 or so. And as the eggs are being deposited by the females that are being fertilized by the sperm and if you do genetic testing so you do the Maury Povich mm -hmm. um, or Jerry Springer paternity test here it turns out that the <laughs> second male to mate with a female the parentage is I think 80% or so of them and then the first male sires about 20% of the offspring wow that consistent so, that is across species from invertebrates yeah. vertebrates Truly. Yeah. So, so what do you, do you have another example? Well, I in mind was just thinking about, uh, I mean, a lot of people think that they think of in primates in particular, that they think of the alpha male as being, as siring the most individuals. And now that can't, that can be true. And that's often very true. They are very successful, but it's actually technically the beta male in a lot of uh, social groups that ends up being the most successful. Um, hmm. And that's because of politics, baby. <laughs> yeah, the beta male who doesn't seem as much of a threat and then kind of sneaks, sneaks in, in there. there That's yeah. how it is with raccoons, that there's like an alpha yeah. that these roaming bands of raccoons will, you know, move around to defend a territory and then there are fe multiple females within that territory and the male mates with most of them, but then the betas kind of sneak in. And yeah. One of the things that kind of surprised me about the cellar spider copulation was that they keep referring to a receptive female so that there is some sort of female mate choice in this whole process, which again is very common in vertebrates. But what I, my understanding in invertebrates, well, I guess I've heard a lot of stories about spiders, read a lot about spiders, knowing that it's usually you, as a male, you get in and you get out as fast as you can. And there's no sort of, well, I guess it depends on the spider. It really does. It depends on the, the species for sure. But um, it's just very different than some of these other things. Like when you hear about, black widows or praying mantises praying mantises not being spiders of course but just other insects where it's like the males get in and get out as fast as they can but there's not really the same level of like the female being like i like you let's do this yeah 
<laughs> yeah i mean that happens with extreme sexual dimorphism where the yes. females are significantly larger so i guess this is not too dramatic yeah like garden yeah garden orb weavers that we've talked about before yeah. the the genus argyope i don't know if i'm saying that right but they will cannibalize the males after copulating right. and with them they have uh, it's like ultra fast copulatory sessions i suppose of just like mere seconds and so they're in and then they're out before they can get whereas this one (laughs) this is saying that on average it takes eight minutes for this whole copulatory period to take place which is fascinating to me because yeah and i i also think it's fascinating i mean i'm sure we'll have plenty of time to talk about like you social insects and that sort of thing but i think it's very fascinating to me that there are a lot of species where the male it's not a get in and get out they deliberately sacrifice themselves for the good and the survival success of their offspring so they will almost somersault gleefully into the mouth of their (laughs) partner (laughs) yeah and you know there are strategies for not getting eaten by your mate (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) if you so they're like nuptial gifts where of you course, can give yeah. like a meal offering or in, in this case, uh, an interesting, you know, it's not a male strategy in this situation, but with the females, the females will lay 50 or 60 eggs, but not all of them are fertilized. And so there are some of these eggs that are being laid that can provide some nourishment to the female. So she's getting nourishment from her own body. So it's not the same as being eat or eating the male <laughs> that you're mating yeah. with. Yeah, go for it, Glenn. Can't... I was just wondering if the male has the option to drop a pedipalp, just like uh, they can drop <laughs> yeah. a leg. Autonomize the, the pedipalp. So, yeah, just leave it behind. If, if things aren't going well or if just, yeah, you get the wrong signal, it's just like, okay, abandon <laughs> I don't pedipalp. Know. I mean, that might be helpful abandon too ship. because it would just sort of create like a a big obstacle that the next male would have to get around. I was reading I was reading today that some spiders can detach their genitals, other species, I think. And sort of leave them, leave them inside the female wow. kind of block. That's can they regrow them? I don't know, but either way, again, it's one of those cases where you don't want to be in- imitating insects. <laughs> yeah. At home well, like yeah, that. that's a real, that's a bold that's move. <laughs> like, because we were talking about copulatory plugs, whenever we were talking about copulatory plugs, and uh, it's one thing to like, <laughs> but it's one thing to just throw the whole. The, baby, the <laughs> yeah. baby out with the bathwater, I think. Is that what I want to say? It's throw the bathwater in, in with where the baby where the, is. <laughs> use the bathwater to plug up the where the babies are? I don't know. Yeah, the something bathtub, like that. It's fine. Okay, okay, yeah, I mean, it's pretty <laughs> risky strategy, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're a male and you're saying, I'm only going to mate once, uh, then that could be dangerous. Yeah, I suppose it's an effective strategy if you have a shorter lifespan. You know, it would be interesting to compare because these, the females have, there's no breeding season. It's relatively constant throughout the day or throughout the year. And so, you know, males can have multiple chances to mate with the same female. And because they have longer lifespans, it would make sense to have less intense pressure on each mating bout that you have (laughs) or each mating event. There's less pressure to be the second male to mate with a female mm-hmm. how many times can they lay eggs in their life approximately do you know in their lifetime they uh, i think it's uh, you know maybe two or three per female so even though like an individual female doesn't have seasonality mm-hmm. 
uh, to it, but she can't con. It's, it's not like a mouse where she can reproduce like seven times a year. Yeah. But still, I mean, that's, you know, a pretty high fecundity or uh, amount of offspring that you could produce if, say, the average would be 20 to 30 eggs that are fertilized that you're laying. And you can do that three, then anywhere from 60 to maybe 100. Yeah, and they live, offspring. what, a couple of years? Yeah, yeah, two to three years. So they have about two, one to two years of being mature. I guess, you know, in terms of some insects that are laying thousands of eggs, that might not be that high of a number. And so one of the things that's interesting about the cellar spiders, they have uh, maternal care of the offspring. And so there's a brief period, about a week and a half or so, where the offspring are not eating and they're pretty helpless. And so they're just developing before their first molt. And the female will lay the eggs and carry them around in her mouth until they hatch. And then she'll defend the eggs or sorry, she'll defend the the recently hatched spiders. And so during this period, she's not eating at all because she's carrying the eggs around in her mouth. And then there are reports, uh, not in the scientific literature, but maybe anecdotal uh, reports that the females are feeding the offspring, which would be really interesting to have in arachnid that is feeding its offspring rather than just defending the eggs. So there's a significant amount of parental care uh, and investment that's happening beyond just producing these eggs. Yeah, yeah. I read that they stick around for a few days after until they have molted at least five or six times or something like that. The young. Yeah. They're not called young. Yeah. I keep wanting to talk about them like they're vertebrates. Sorry, guys. It's disrespectful. <laughs> Hatchlings? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they're, they're called when they're small. Yeah, and I mean, you know, with uh, there are some strategies like kangaroos and elephants if conditions are really harsh they can uh, abort the offspring before they've been birthed and then reabsorb some of those nutrients and with a spider if you have a pretty short gestation period and then you lay all these eggs if conditions are really harsh you can just eat your babies <laughs> um, which is you know one strategy for for dealing with it and so there is like some cannibalism but not not a ton Oh, uh, I, I just want, I'm going to throw this in. This is sort of a, a random fact. I, I came across a, a bunch of really interesting research. I, when I was researching, I was like, there's probably not going to be a bunch. And it turns out they're so common. They're everywhere and they're pretty well studied. Uh, but one of the things I found that was interesting about their food habits is that they're kleptoparasites, which klepto means steel. And then parasite means you feed off of some other organism. And so they're stealing the food of other spiders. So that's another reason that they'll enter into a web of another spider is to steal their food. The reason yeah. that is fascinating to me is because it seems like their primary form of communication, either with other spiders for copulatory purposes or to catch spiders, is vibrations. And oftentimes... Mm -hmm. I know that many species of spider will only eat things that are moving. You can't just like put a, you know, dead fly down in front of a spider and they'll eat it. But this would indicate to me that they go into other webs and they just sneak around and like wait until they have, I, I mean, what are their main sources? I mean, they're just using chemical chemo reception, like smell to determine when they have identified a a source of food even if it's long dead or do you have any idea <laughs> yeah i mean know? they there's 
one research study that I was looking at where they were looking at cellar spiders and then a related species uh, in the same genus. Um, And the other spider was less or was more likely to cannibalize itself and uh, or not itself, but other members of its species. And so the thought there was that there's some sort of kin recognition Mm. that they have probably through olfaction. So they're more able to yeah identify a member of their species and avoid eating it because if you are this predatory spider that's leaving your own web um the other species called uh fulcus manueli and so if you're leaving your own web and you're going and hunting other things and you live in really dense populations then there's a chance that the next web or the web next to you is going to be your own species and you should probably avoid eating it and so there's some ability to detect members of their own species. Yeah. And it's primarily through olfaction right. rather than through vibrations. Yeah. Uh, they, I did. I forgot to mention one of their other uh, in Italian. The common name for them is... It's Ragno Ballerino, Dancing Spider. <laughs> uh, do you know why they, why they get that name, Glenn? I had I read that they do this gyrating thing for defense that... If they they um, detect a predator, they'll sort of do this. They'll keep their legs in place, but gyrate their body, and it kind yeah. of throws off the vision it's or or some craze. senses of the attacking spider. Plus, it's cool to watch. And if you do that and <laughs> drop a leg, do the shaky leg. It's too much. Do the spider leg. Gyrate. Yeah, your body's <laughs> flopping around, and then your little autonomized leg is just yes. yeah. bend it and drop it. <laughs> It's so yeah. wild to see them do this. They gyrate their bodies or something, and they just look like they're bouncing up and down. It's crazy. You can't focus on them. You can't like really see their body because they're just moving so quickly. And so, yeah, they're the the dancing dancing spider. It's pretty wild to see, and it's really functional. I mean, other species have like a long tailed weasels have little black tips at the end of their tails so that when they're running away from a prey, the prey is distracted by the black tip or the squirrels we mentioned have the tail flicking that draws predators toward their tails. And so it's like a strategy of if a predator can see you or knows you're there, it's a way of being right in front of it and confusing it to the point where it won't, yeah, successfully kill you. I do the same thing. Um, sometimes I'm in the trouble with the law. I'll just sort of gyrate around and dance, and it does just not give, usually They work. just give up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes it works. I am not dealing with this guy. <laughs> I do not get paid enough for this. And sometimes they'll just start dancing with me. They're like, check out those moves. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to add, I mean, because it's, it's easy to imagine as a note, but I just wanted to add that if a spider is smelling out pheromones or smelling out dead creatures it is using these specialized hollow hairs on its pedipalps and legs does not have a yeah oh interesting not have our nose that's a that's a difficult no thing no for some people to like smell to us is so intimately connected with our our nose and our our tongue but it's just like we're just detecting chemicals it's nothing fancy yeah i know it's like with snails how they have those little chemoreceptor antennae yeah and it just doesn't make sense as a human. We are like, why would your nose no. be on the outside? <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess we'll wrap up our conversation here by talking about spiders. So this is, uh, I'm going to 
in advance of putting in this episode out, uh, put a little notice out to my mom. My mom has severe arachnophobia and <gasps> I grew up in Southern California and we lived next to this place, Tarantula Hill, and we would get tarantulas that would come into our house every now and then. And we had like black sure. widows on the outside of our, uh, house, but it, I, so I would always have to deal with spiders that were in or around our house. And so I'm going to have to preempt this uh when i publicize this warning yeah warning spiders (laughs) exactly for my mom so uh, we were talking about this i know you know uh dr fleener's background is really centered around like understanding animal behavior but also has keen interest in relating animal behavior to human psychology and understanding the like sort of internal mental landscapes of animals so i just want to get your your thoughts on our like internal psyche and visceral reactions to spiders yeah so that's true so my background is i mean so i mentioned it in the last episode but it's in comparative human development and what that means is basically that studying humans is useless if you do not have (laughs) a evolutionary perspective or you have some sort of comparisons so i studied um, cognition and behavior on a developmental scale in monkeys because and I compared that to how we think about humans because that's the only way we can really understand ourselves is by comparing and contrasting but yeah so one of the interesting things so get to the part where you throw spiders at monkeys (laughs) okay so the important part (laughs) so I'll start here so how many people a year do you think die of spider bites. I mean, die. Not just are hospitalized. I mean, like, die. I'd say the, millions. Oh, let's, start, let's start in the just in the United States. Probably like 100 or 200 million. 200 million? <laughs> <laughs> I might be off. <laughs> it's either really high or really low. Otherwise, you wouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> several. What do you think, Tig? Several? I would say okay. several. No, it's not my job on this podcast to be answering questions. A, <laughs> I would you're say the two. asker. Two. I'm going to say it's seven. Uh, seven feels, uh, it's got to be low. 17. That's insanely close. It's actually 6.6. So that 0.6th of a person. Round it up. Yeah, round it up. Yeah, so on average, 6.6 people a year die of spider bites. What do you think is the country where the most people die of spider bites? Australia. Australia. Right? But it's the lowest. It's the lowest. In Australia, they have not had a death from spider bites since 1980. Wow. So, yeah, sure, people are hospitalized all the time. In fact, a lot of reasons why um, they haven't had a death in Australia is because they have since made this funnel web anti-venom that they can use when people come in and are like, oh. ah, necrotic damage, fix me. I just guessed zero because I thought people were spider, spider smart over there. They're spider. That also might have something to do with it. You're right. I don't have all of the variables. Yeah. But... I will say that about 75 people in Australia a year die of horses, being killed by horses. Now, the reason I'm saying all of these uh, numbers is because we don't have in a fear of horses. I mean, some people do. Some people don't like horses and their cute little faces and their enormous legs. They are very strong and they should be very intimidating. But nobody has that same visceral reaction to horses that we do to spiders even though the majority of spiders are fine. And the reason is... Can you imagine if we had that visceral response to cars? (laughs) 
<laughs> which right? are infinitely more deadly than infinitely more deadly exactly yeah. there's like a million like or to high blood pressure but yeah so we have over time we have developed these fears and cognitive biases where even though they are maybe inaccurate it's still more beneficial to us to have this fear and be protected from uh, the potential of a threat than to uh, make a mistake and uh, get have no fear and then potentially get bitten. Now, when we were, you know, 200,000 years ago, I would say, or maybe even a million years ago when we were shaping the human species, there were some main things that shaped us as a species, the main predators, Aerial predators like big eagles and hawks and that sort of thing. So actually, if you go outside and you feel see a giant shadow over you, we we do have hmm. that kind of immediate reaction where we're like, oh, geez, what's going to get me? Of course, it doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, and then the other thing that was a big concern was a big thing that killed us was disease, which is how we evolved certain things like disgust because anything that has like pus or feces or blood we're like ugh, gross get me away from that and that's because over millions of years we have developed this cognitive bias against anything that is disgusting so that we stay away from it and we don't passings on now the same thing goes it's interesting i mean there's like cultural taboos yes. oh also like gosh, incest yes. to well, that are Mm, yes, actually, this is really interesting. We tend to inhibit a lot of our our features of disgust in uh, reproductive scenarios because we tend to have because there are a lot of bodily fluids that are involved in reproduction. There yeah. are a lot of things like so there tends to be yeah we we do tend to inhibit that part of our brain because the this the I would say the importance of reproduction is suddenly now has trumped or is is more beneficial to us reproducing is more beneficial to us than protecting our own selves so it's kind of like this constant sort of like balancing act of which is going to be more important for example in science we have a bunch of different types of errors there's like a true positive when you know you know that that rabid dog is going to bite you so you stay away from it that's a Mm. true positive um you stay away from it a true negative is going to be i know that that little bunny is not going to bite me so i have no fear of that little bunny but then what shapes fears and what shapes phobias are false positives or the balancing act between false positives and false negatives so a type one error in science is a false positive which is where you adopt something as being true even though it's false and a type two error is a false negative which is where you don't adopt something even if it's true and traditionally in science a false positive or a type one error is the thing that's going to have way worse consequences like for medicine or for hypotheses but in like evolution a false negative is way worse. A type 2 error is way worse than a false positive because if you consider everything to be bad, then nothing can hurt you. And that's much better than assuming that everything is good and then getting bitten one time and then totally dying. So basically all that is to be said that we have all of these naturally ingrained fears for things like spiders and snakes because even though the vast majority of them are safe, 
we tend to assume that they are all dangerous because the cost of being wrong is far greater than the cost of of them being fine and and us like having these nice little spider friends. So it's much easier for our brain to just quickly be like, okay, anything that has this spooky little body with these big long legs is a big old no-no. Just whenever you see them, <laughs> you jump, you pee your pants, you every your friends laugh at you, and that's it. It's, but it's way better if your friends laugh at you for jumping and peeing your pants because you saw a spider than if you were to get bitten by a spider. Are we starting to get into Christine's personal this trauma files? <laughs> I just want to just get this out here so that everybody, yeah. Um. So yeah, you can ask some more questions. I got some studies to back me up too. Go well, ahead. so at at what point do these? errors start to show up so these are the the type 2 errors right for yeah so i mean it's interesting because of course there's a big difference between a phobia and a fear a fear is something that is a proportional response to something that's actually scary so Hmm. like if a car is running at you and you scream and jump out of the way that's a proportional response a phobia would be if you saw a parked car and you screamed and jumped out of the way and there was not that was not a proportional response there was no threat sure. that was present but you preemptively responded to a potential for threat so but these phobias keep occurring because again it's still adaptive to be careful right so a lot of people would think that it is something that you kind of learn in your lifetime And a lot of people think, no, this is something that's deeply ingrained. Well, the reality of the situation is that it's a little bit of both. Because, yes, and that's what's fascinating and beautiful. And this is true for humans. It's true for a lot of primates. It's true for crickets, even. um, Is that you, we have kind of this uh, sort of pre-ingrained identification for threats that are shaped in a certain way. Say that they're spiders or they're snakes. But... Based on what our parents or mothers, how they respond to these things, we do see these responses. And in these uh, continuing generations, we see this increase in this response to to threat. So if you were to show a baby a bunch of pictures of like, oh, this is a shaky whatever ball and this is a... Um, a picture of a spider, the baby is going to notice that spider, even though they have literally no experience with spiders. But it's also in primates where that that response is going to be stronger if your mother, usually your mother because you spend more time with your mom, has a very strong experience or response with that spider. Now, yeah, my, what we... my mom calls it the, the mother <laughs> gasp. Where if she's if anything goes wrong, she's like, <gasps> you know, this really <laughs> now sharp. you know, yeah. But it's true. It, it elicits like a, a yeah, you know, such a visceral response that is external to my experience of something, and so I'm probably much more wary around spiders than I might otherwise be. Like for me, scorpions, I don't have that same visceral response to, but they're much more dangerous in most situations and so my friend and I used to catch scorpions as kids in Southern California but for me spiders were always like even if we would flip a rock and find tarantulas I I was always like yeah I didn't want anything to do with them and part of it was that cultural thing where it's like my mom gasping in fear in the background 
Yeah, so you can basically say, like, we, especially as humans, we are constantly confronted with threats all the time. I mean, if I were to show you a picture of a gun or a needle or things like that, they would elicit some sort of a stressful response. But we are just evolutionarily, there are these evolutionarily persistent threats that make it more quickly or make it more easy for us to 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 like build a fear for something. So even like, you know, flowers or damaged electrical outlets or guns or cars, <laughs> like they, like all of these things, it takes much, a much longer time for us to build an immediate response uh, or an immediate fear to these things. But I wanted to also try to, and also just to chime in real quick, yeah. like the, for some people, a gun might represent freedom or hunting or like fond exactly. memories with their family and a yeah. needle might represent like if you're a nurse and exactly. it might, yeah, signify, it might not have the same negative impact. So they're like cultural elements. We have to learn those. Like you were saying, it's not an evolutionary response. Yeah. It's a cultural response. But I, I thought, oh, go ahead, Glenn. Well, I just wanted to weigh in for a moment because my background is, um, as I, I think you all may know, uh, I was a cultural anthropologist by train training long ago. Nobody knows if you're serious or not. <laughs> I, this, this one's actually serious. This is what my do- doctor is. And we were taught and sort of trained to believe that, yes, we may have these um, innate predispositions, but that what we really adapted, what we really evolved to be is adaptive. And our brains have evolved to be so plastic that what we are most able to do is adapt to the beliefs of those around us, our parents and our culture. And so, yes, we might have a, a babies may sort of recognize spiders and have sort of a response, you know, sort of a visceral response to spiders, but that can be shaped in all kinds of directions, including they might be attracted to spiders if you're at a place where there's no poisonous spiders and your culture is sort of worshiping the spider or regarding the spider as something sacred or something not to be feared. So. I am not sure that, um, I mean, I I would think that there's a difference between having a sort of visceral response or some sort of, you know, attenuated attention to something versus uh, versus an innate fear and avoidance. I would be careful about making that distinction for my training. And yes, I see both of you have your hands raised. Do you want to go first? Well, I just, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Margaret Mead was like pretty instrumental in the the idea that humans are totally plastic and that our I, cultural identities are our primary shapers of who we are rather than a biological underpinning of that and i think sort of the wave of evolutionary psychology has really pushed back on that idea that humans and our you know responses to the external world are are primarily cultural and Samoans I, also lied to her just a lot yes <laughs> a right. lot. yeah well, first of all you're using an anthropologist from what the 1940s to <laughs> yeah. discredit yeah. what i was taught just because that's the last time later. we've thought about anthropology <laughs> but she was, she was i mean that i i way of thinking was prominent for you know decades and decades after she wrote coming of age in samoa and i i think wasn't really challenged until like sociobiology Right. Well, I was like... I was in school after sociobiology, so it was a reaction against sociobiology. And the idea was, yes, there may be um, reactions people have, but plasticity is not, it's not that the brains are totally plastic and we're non-biological beings, but it's just that culture can channel our biological responses in different directions. Exactly. And so not, not necessarily a fear or phobia, 
of an animal. If we have a heightened response to spiders or heightened attention as babies, that could be channeled in a bunch of different directions. It might tend to be towards fear because there are poisonous spiders in many places, and it would make sense for our parents and our culture to have us be wary of those as children when we don't know what we're doing. But it's possible that those could be channeled in other directions. I guess that's what I was sort of taught or trained, yeah. trained at, and I still somewhat believe. Yeah, I, I just want to clarify that when I say that there is this sort of evolutionary underpinning to have this aversion or this a- attention to these potential threats, it's like as a baby, you don't know anything, but it's in there. You still need to like, it's still ingrained in you after millions of years of selection where you your ancestors didn't make it because they didn't attend to these threats. But, and I will use myself as an anecdotal evidence, I love spiders. And that's because from a young age, I was afraid of them because that's, you know, that was part of my biology. And so I read as much as I could about spiders and I identified exactly which spiders were dangerous and which spiders weren't. And when I realized that nobody dies from spiders ever, I was like, oh, I'm chill with spiders now. So like, I do think that the biggest message for this is that it's easier for us to build aversions to these sort of evolutionary underpinnings for threat, but that doesn't mean we do have to necessarily build them. It's just the, it's just like language, like we just like have this underpinning, but we won't learn language if we aren't exposed to language, but our brains are built such that like we, we, that's our primary source of communication. So like, we will babble, we will, we will detect spiders, we will detect snakes, but yeah, over the course of our lifespan, um, it, we don't have to hate them. <laughs> we're not, we're not slaves for our biology, <laughs> you're saying. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. hate, don't be, you don't have to hate, even though. Don't, no hate, yeah, love them. gonna hate. They're so sweet, unless they're not. Or if you choose, you can have a love-hate relationship, which is yeah. what I choose to have with most of my friends. Yeah, <laughs> most of your spiders. Most of my spider friends. No, middle schoolers actually. <laughs> right, my only I think remember. middle school friends. Good point. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna use some personal experience for my research. So one of the things that I did with, I worked on, uh, I worked on Cayo Santiago. It's uh, also commonly referred to as Monkey Island. You can look it up out there, but it's uh, basically an island of a thousand monkeys. They were moved there 75 plus years ago um, and they've just been kind of left to their own devices they're still supplemented with food but they have this entire island to themselves it's off the coast of puerto rico and so they don't have any natural predators they've been moved from india to the caribbean it's a very different i mean it's a similar kind of climate but it's a very different everything i mean the trees were different the everything was different I wanted to sort of see how they would respond to the novelty of objects, having not experienced any threats other than threats from other conspecifics, because these are rhesus macaques. They're an incredibly despotic species, which means that they basically have a very steep hierarchy and are therefore really huge jerks to each other (laughs) at all times. So anyway, so what I did is I had, you know, a couple- Can they make fists? Yeah, they make fists and they run a lot? They're- their faces are perfectly evolved for receiving punches. But yeah, so I wanted to see what their response was going to be to just novelty. And if they would be able to differentiate novelty that was in some way evolutionarily connected to something that might appear to be a problem. I wasn't using spiders, I was using snakes. And I was following a lot of like Susan Maneka's 
research where, that she did with uh, Rhesus Macaques. But basically what I, I found out was kind of contrary to what I expected. I don't know. Do you guys want to? I feel like I'm talking a lot. No, go for it. Go for like it. Keep going. Weigh in on what you think that they responded to. How do you think that they responded to these to like a rubber ball versus a rubber snake or just my through. my sense is that you know there was another study with uh vervet monkeys i think where they Vervets, carted yeah. uh like a leopard or something yes. through the forest and then and that elicited elicited specific r- responses because mm-hmm. that is a primary predator of those monkeys and then they yes. did the same thing with aerial predators and they got yeah. different alarm calls and yeah. so i would assume Assume that like a you know there has to be an evolutionary pressure to over time have a adaptation to that pressure and so if it's winter then winter has to be severe enough and over enough generations that it makes sense to have traits for coping with that pressure so with there would have to be some in the native habitat of the rhesus macaque there would have to be some snaky thing in the environment that was a prominent enough force that it would kill off the young to right. prevent them from getting to breeding age. I mean, they're from their species is is endemic to to India and like Southeast Asia, and uh, they would have lived in this island that has no natural predators for I don't know seven ten fifth. <laughs> I'm trying to think Wait, of how many generations that they in lived India. There. I mean, or no? In, so the species, no, no. the species is from India, but the monkeys that I tested had been living on this island for, I mean, 60, anyone, 70 generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, like eighty generations. Well, I would say <clears throat> this is drawing upon. You know, I grew up in the south, so this is drawing upon my experience with relatives and friends, but. Um, Several of the monkeys would have been scared of the plastic snake, but maybe one of them would have picked it up and started handling it and started sort of a religious wow. movement and gotten some other monkeys to follow him or her. I love that. And some of them would have played with a ball, and a lot of them would have thrown the ball at each other, other's face, because <laughs> they were despotic. Wish. Yeah. I love that. And then some of them would have maybe grabbed the snake and flipped it around and used it to, to maybe beat like other Indiana monkeys. Like Jones kind of situation, yeah. Yeah, or just like a, yeah, like a bolo, I believe. <laughs> Well, part of me really wants to think that they would have a uniform response to it, but they're also, you were just, at the start of it, you were just saying how they're in a completely foreign environment, and yet they're still able to totally cope. So they must be generalists on some level, which means that their brains have to be pretty adaptable themselves or plastic so that they would be able to shift what they're foraging on and shift what they're consciousness is geared towards for what are the threats so i'd assume that there's more curiosity i mean they were probably pissed at you for throwing stuff at them i didn't Um, throw it (laughs) you were okay you were tossing it to them uh i would assume that they were probably maybe slightly more intrigued by the banana not the banana the snakey but they i get those mixed up too yeah like with babies if you put a Oh, I don't even remember. It's like if you put a triangle with two dots in it. Yeah. Uh, that, so it looks like a human a face. face. Yeah. And then you put it faces. upside down. They'll spend more time looking at the face looking triangle with two dots. Mm-hmm. And their just attention is slightly more drawn to it. Not that they're like trying to talk to it or anything. So I would think that they're 
slightly more drawn to the snake and curious about it, but not yeah. that it elicits a negative response. Yes, so that's exactly right. The thing that I found fascinating. Do is I get a PhD? Do you get a PhD? <laughs> yes, you get an honorary PhD. You get two. Um, two you didn't like, even have to do the, the research. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So basically, what I found that was so in- interesting to me is that they, yeah, sure, they came up and they were like, "This is a ball. That's weird. I don't see a lot of balls around here." But when there was a snake around, even though they'd never met a snake before and wouldn't have met a snake for 80 generations, they spent more time inspecting it. Which at first I thought, that's weird because you're spending a lot of time next to this snake and pulling this snake and then running away and then coming back up and checking. Like there was this expectation that it was in some way living and that it was it was a very salient object in their, like minds of what is an important thing to pay attention to but Mm. they didn't necessarily code it as a threat so that was interesting to me and that was all that i wanted to say about so they spent a little more time handling the snake are you saying yeah so they spent less time actually touching it but they spent more time in proximity of it so they were yeah it wasn't so much about the handling yeah it wasn't so they did actually they did keep a a safer I guess not safer distance it's more of like a yeah they didn't do as much like inspecting like moving and inspecting like they did with with a ball it was like a dog toy do they eat snakes of any kind um I mean they are fairly omnivorous so I can imagine it opportunistically they might in the wild but again in I mean on this island there are iguanas um, that they don't really ever mess with, but there are no other snakes or snake-like hmm. creatures. Yeah, I was just thinking because, I mean, with you know, we're talking about spiders, and I think what you were just saying at the end there, that they were more drawn to it, and it was a signal to pay attention to, but not to yeah. necessarily attach a value to. And there are humans that eat spiders. And so it yeah. might just be caught up in our psyche like this spider shape or a snake's shape and so it is just drawing our attention to something because if you're rapidly scanning the ground as you're walking stepping on a snake could be bad and so you just want to be able to focus in on that but you don't necessarily want to write it off as being toxic or venomous or something to always avoid but just something to be aware of on a more immediate level yeah although they probably eat ball-shaped fruit well, maybe. Yeah. Dang it, you're right. I gotta go back. No, I did a bunch of different. I did controls and everything. I'm just giving you the, the basics. Uh, also, I just wanted to say because I don't know if we said it is back to cellar spiders because remember when we were doing an episode about cellar spiders? Um, yeah. That was forever ago. Uh, but that I've I was always wondering because I knew that they spent the majority of their time inside because they don't do well in cold climate and right. i was like well how did, would they end up here and again of course you know it's one another one of those invasive situations they're all from like africa and, and south america they yeah and then they've just been brought over i mean they're yeah pretty adaptable can be brought over in shipping pallets can be brought over in like shipments of furniture if you're moving across the country if you're moving to a new continent yeah there's unlimited cozy spaces for a tiny spider but I totally. say welcome them in. I have a thousand, thousand and they're all welcome here. They don't pay rent. It's upsetting <laughs> yeah. to me, but 
Yeah, I mean they're not they're not venomous. They will well, venomous, minimize but the not, like dangerous. They That's eat true. venomous spiders. We've they eat venomous too. spiders. Yeah, so. Yes. Um, yeah. So and they take care of unwanted other pests. So yeah. And they're Keep great at parties, as we've established. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So we're gonna wrap up this episode, but before we go, Glenn, PR man. Yeah. You've had plenty of time to think about the scrotum frog. <laughs> You don't like the warbling prince? You want me to I do did like the than... warbling prince, but the warbling prince might not evoke images of a frog or a toad in one's mind. Also, so if one does not show. realize that if you kiss a frog, it turns into a prince, you're right. Hmm. Okay, I'll come up with a new one. That's what you're asking, right? Yeah. Um, what about the uh, dangling flycatcher? Dangling. How about the wrinkled flycatcher? <laughs> How about the wizened flycatcher? <laughs> Sounds like a bird. Yeah, we'll take it. The wizard Wizardly? flycatcher. How about the flycatching wizard? Sure. Because <laughs> wizards have wrinkles because they're old. Oh, like got it. Do. I was trying to draw the connection there. Okay, I got and it now. And a lot of wizards have scrotums. Yeah, the dangling it's, wizard. Yeah, what do you... Well... It's a euphemism, but it's somewhat more <laughs> cozy. Yeah. Yeah, the dangling wizard. Got it. Great. That's a wrap. That's a, that's that's a, wrap. a wrap. All right, well... We'll see you next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye, dear listeners. Love, I love you. Okay, cut that out. Cut that out. Cut that out. <laughs> no, we always end yeah. with that. Sweet man, you send off. I love you. Very earnestly. <laughs> we should all be grateful that we're not some Lilliputian Rick Moranis fleeing from the gnarly chalicera of a cellar spider. Truly the stuff of nightmares. Let's put a soothing balm on our psyches and head back up into the sun. Next episode, we'll look at the brilliant yellow denizens of our lawns, dandelions. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. Helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. After that, head on over to crowspath.org podcast and get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of natural history content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on A Single Acorn.